This talk was given at the North Carolina Zen Center. Our programming is made possible through the support of our members and friends. If you would like to make a donation to the Center or become a member, please visit us at www.nczencenter.org. We have found that it can aid one's understanding of a Dharma talk or Taisho if you sit in meditation beforehand, and we encourage you in this practice. Thank you for listening. Good morning. The the other night, uh, I was at the Chapel Hill Zen Center, which is about 35 or so minutes north of here, for a teacher's meeting. It was it's a small group of us called the tri- the Triangle, I believe it's called the Triangle Area Buddhist Teachers Association, some kind of name like that. Uh, and it comprises of Dharma teachers from different lineages, Zen, uh, Vajrayana, uh, Vipassana, um, and others. Uh, so once every few months, uh, we get together and just um, sit and have dinner and then take up a conversation, take up a topic that seems relevant to to all of us. And the topic that was on the agenda was lineage um, this time lineage you know what is what is our lineage and where do we where do we get our practices from etc uh, but what actually ended up dominating the conversation was an unfolding scandal that's been happening in one of the country's largest Buddhist communities the Shambhala community uh, are people aware of this at all? Okay. Mm. I won't say much about it, but just, just a couple of things. Shambhala is uh, linked to uh, Chogyo Trumpa Rinpoche, who was a Tibetan teacher who came here back in the, I believe in 1970 or so, came to America and started uh, teaching and his son is now the head of the order. It's a very large organization, very large across the, the country and then across the world. They have centers, Dharma centers. And it turns out that <clears throat> this, uh, his son, who's now the head, has been having sexual affairs with students for years and um, has also had a, a major problem with alcohol abuse. And so this has been known by many for some years, and but now with the Me Too movement is coming to light, which is a wonderful thing to have it finally uh, come to light. So he has stepped back from teaching. And so some of the teachers there, three of the teachers to be specific, are associated with that lineage and were sharing some of their personal experience with how difficult that was to work with as students. Um, if you'd like to read more, I encourage you to do so. There's something online called the Sunshine Report, which uh, somebody has taken up and in investigating this and is putting information out there. And so what came up for me in light of this was the student-teacher relationship in, in our lineage and in other traditions. What is it about? 
what's the role of the teacher. Um, I won't. I don't think I want to spend too much time talking about these abuses right now, although it's a worthy topic. How does it happen, and why does it happen? But just specifically about this, what is it, what is this teacher-student relationship about in Buddhism? Because it's prominent and it's different than many other spiritual traditions. There's, I think, more of an emphasis on that relationship than, say, in Christianity or in Judaism um, and things like that. So I would say that in Buddhism, the student-teacher, or how the teacher is viewed is runs the gamut. It's a spectrum. Everywhere, anywhere from one end of the spectrum, for example, in some lineages of Tibetan Buddhism, including the Shambhala lineage, where the teacher is seen as a guru, uh, infallible. In fact, one of the early practices of Tibetan Buddhism is that one takes up is to begin to try to see the teacher as the Buddha. Infallible. Perfect. No matter what they do. Um, so it runs all the way from that end of things all the way to some Vipassana communities, which is another tradition in Buddhism, comes from Southeast Asia, where the teacher is seen um, with much less power and is seen as more of a spiritual friend. So... So there's everything in between those. And in Zen, we do put a great deal of emphasis on the student-teacher relationship, but it's uh, it's certainly not a guru type of relationship. In Zen, we we think of the teacher as a, a guide, someone who has done enough practice, who has been doing it long enough where they have been exposed to enough situations where they have something to offer. I think often of kind of if someone was a tr- an expert in, say, a particular trail, hiking trail, uh, maybe a difficult hiking trail, uh, that the guide can help um, uh, guide hikers uh Avoiding the pitfalls, of course, but also, but also pointing out the vistas, pointing out the, the things to, to stop and see. And in, in, at least in our lineage of Zen, I think most would agree that there are different ways to engage in a student-teacher relationship. There's not just one way. And the reason for that is because, um, at least to my mind, it can be difficult to come to a zendo. It can be difficult to come to a place in one's life where this a practice like this becomes important. Because essentially what we're saying, I've said this before here, when we walk in the doors of a zendo like this, our meditation center, what we're saying is we want help. That the practice on some level we want we want its help we want the practice's help and we want to be guided and that that's not easy for everybody to to admit that that we don't have all of the answers and so people can be often be in a very tender place when they come to a practice like this and it can take a long time to warm up to 
even thinking about getting into a student-teacher relationship, let alone showing up consistently to a sitting practice like this. So in our school of Zen, there are three main ways that we learn. Um, The first is through talks like this, Dharma talks. Um, And I think most people uh, that are looking outside uh, from, from at this practice from the outside think that this is sort of what a teacher's role is, is to simply just give talks, right? This is what they do. <laughs> um, so the, the, a, a Dharma talk, I would say, is the most accessible way to approach the teachings. It's, by definition, one way. It's a one-way uh, street. Um, but it's also, in that, it's also the safest way for people to be exposed to practice. Uh, because in that one-way uh, method, there's a kind of a safe distance that people have. Like right now, there's a safe distance. Um, meaning that, for example, if I say something that you disagree with, which I'm sure happens <laughs> occasionally, then you can just dismiss it in your mind. You can do with it what you want. You can say, eh, don't, I don't like that. I don't agree. And if that happens often enough, you can always just stop coming. Right? Which some people do. So it's safe. There's no risk, or there's very little risk on um, a student's part in engaging in the teaching simply by listening. The second aspect of the way we teach in Zen is through sitting practice, silent sitting. And in that, it's a dialogue. But it's a dialogue between you and yourself. So you're learning from yourself over and over again. And I would say that this way of learning in Zen is less safe. Because if you're honest with yourself, you're going to come up against things that you don't necessarily want to see. And so then you have to decide, do I pay attention to these things or do I ignore them? And it becomes less, as we practice longer, less, uh, it becomes uh, not so easy to ignore those things inside of ourselves that we're trying to change. So that's kind of the second way. And I would say the third way is through one-on-one, face-to-face teachings. And this is what the individual doksan is about, where people come and meet one-on-one. And I would say that's probably the, um, the most challenging for most people. Because in that, it's a two-way street. It's a dialogue between me and the student, between you and me or you and another teacher. By the way, I would also say that um, 
in the sitting practice, the second way that we do it, the, the reason that this is so important is because it sets the ground for receptive, uh, receptivity to the teachings. In other words, if we simply always just come to a Dharma talk or Doksan without sitting ahead of time, we're going to be less receptive, where our minds are going to be less able to open to what is being taught. But, so I just want to say a couple words about what Doksan is about. So this, this kind of, this Taisho, by the way, is kind of somewhat educational because I've never given a talk on uh, a lot of the forms that we have in our lineage. So this is, I'm, I'm aware that this is somewhat educational, but it's purposeful in that way. Um, in When somebody starts coming to one-on-one meetings, Doksan, um, usually what happens is they start with a lot of questions. There are a lot of kind of philosophical questions about the practice. There's a lot of back and forth, uh, more intellectual kind of approach. And again, this, to my mind, is a necessary part of practice. But in one way, what the teacher is waiting for is for those questions to kind of quiet down. Um, because in one way, what the teacher is recognizing is that those questions, while necessary, also create a kind of distance. That relating intellectually in Doksan, like questions like, I was curious about why Buddhism does this, da 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 That in that kind of interaction, there's a also a kind of safe intellectual distance that happens. The question gets answered, and then the bell rings, and then okay, that. And but I, I th- what happens over time is those questions get answered, and then we go, okay, now what? Do I keep going to Doksan, right? When I don't really have any questions, and. Uh, this is where one of two things usually happen. What, the first thing is people stop coming. And that's common. Okay, I don't have any questions, so why go to Doksan? But the second thing that happens is they continue to go. People continue to come. And this is where things start to really gain traction. Because it's in that interaction that we recognize the power We recognize that, that that just going, there's a power in that. There's, there's like when we don't know what to say, when we don't have a specific question, what does that kick up inside of us? So there was an old article in in in. Um, Getting into this Shambhala thing, I came across an article by Pema Chodron. Do have people heard of Pema Chodron before? She's okay. Has anybody not? Okay, Pema Chodron is a is a dark heir of Trungpa Rinpoche, who I mentioned in the very beginning, who started the Shambhala lineage. It's a Tibetan Buddhist. She's so she's a Tibetan Buddhist teacher, and she's up in Nova Scotia. I think she's got to be in her eighties by now. 
um, very well-respected teacher. And in an article, she writes this. She says, working intimately with a teacher is the same thing as learning to stop shielding ourselves from the completely uncertain nature of reality. In other words, when we work closely with a teacher, all the ways that we hold back and shut down, all the ways that we cling and grasp, all of our habitual ways of limiting and solidifying our world become clear to us, and it's unnerving. At some painful point, we usually want to make the teacher wrong or make ourselves wrong or do anything that is habitual and comforting to get back some ground under our feet. But when we make an unconditional commitment to hang in there, we do not run away from the pain of seeing ourselves. And this is a revolutionary thing to do, and it transforms us. But how many of us are ready for this? One has to gradually develop the trust that it is ultimately liberating to let go of strongly held assumptions about reality. This is, this is really what Zen practice is about, is letting go of our held views about things. Because it's only when we let go of our views that we can see what reality is trying to show us. Many people come to Buddhism and Zen because they already have some ideas in their head. They have, we, we all have this. We all have a way of looking at the world. We have political views. We have philosophical views, religious views. We have all of our conditioning that makes us see the world in a certain way. And many com- people come to Buddhism in order really to have those views confirmed. Okay, this is an important point. Many of us come to Buddhism and to Zen practice to reaffirm what we already think. We're hoping to get support in who we believe we already are. But the danger in this is that when we're doing this, when we're in the project of just having our views already affirmed, then reality might just pass us by. We might miss out on something because it doesn't line up with our views. My teacher once did this in Teisho. He said, many people, many of you here, many people come to Zen practice with the idea that ecology is right. That ecology, ecologically, that environmentalism is uh, what we should believe in. And he said, Many of you are on the environmental bandwagon. Okay, and then he said, right there, how many of you just had an internal reaction to that statement? 
right? How many of you thought, oh, what's he kidding? Environmental bandwagon? Of course environmentalism is right. Right, kind of like a little sting inside, like, what the hell? You see? And he said, yeah, it's right there that's the problem. Because you're looking to have your views confirmed. And in having them challenged, sometimes that sense of, I'm right, comes up. Does that make sense? Okay. So, so this is difficult. Because we don't, also, we don't want to check our brains at the door either in Zen practice. But if we're simply looking to have our worldview confirmed, then we may miss out on something important. So the teachings can be challenging. Here's an example. Here's an ex- another example. Very famous Zen master, it involves very famous Zen master, Nansen. So one day, the monks of the East Halls and the West Hall, East Hall and West Hall, were arguing about a cat. And I don't know what they were arguing about. But Nansen happened to walk by. He's the teacher. And he, and he sees these monks arguing. So he grabs the cat, picks it up, and says, and unless one of you can give me a word of truth, I'm going to cut this cat in two. And the monks couldn't do it. The monks were, like, stopped up. And so he cut the cat in two. What does that do to you inside? How could a Zen master cut a cat in two? What does that have to do with compassion? Right? Of course, there's something else going on here. But these stories, these teachings, sometimes they get under our skin and they work on us. They kind of grate on us because they don't line up with what we assume the world is like. And this is the power. This is the power of a practice like this. Britton, could you switch on the lights a little bit? I'm getting a lot of... It's hard to see. Thank you. So one way we can become challenged is in the student-teacher relationship. And... A big challenge for me when I worked with one, uh, more than, actually all of my teachers, was in seeing their humanness. Because I think many of us struggle. Many of us have a tension. There's kind of a built-in tension. On the one hand, we want teachers, we want spiritual teachers to be perfect. We want them to be flawless. We want to see in them what we hope to see in ourselves. But on the other hand, we want them to be human. We want them to be like us, relatable. And so there's a tension built in to the way we interact with teachers. And I think people fluctuate between these kind of two poles. You could say that's understandable. I, I believe it's understandable that somebody wants that firm role model. They want a heavy, solid anchor. 
Because when you're suffering, when you're in the storms of your own life, you want that anchor to look to. At the same time, we want to know that we're not alone, that this person is normal, that this person that I'm looking to actually is not trying to pretend to be perfect, not trying to, you know, put on a show, right? So we want to see them in all their flaws. So in this way, the student-teacher relationship can be challenging. And it's challenging because we also see in our side of ourselves what we don't necessarily want to see. What stuff that we don't want to admit. So in that same article, Pema Chodron talks about developing steadfastness in that relationship. She says, What I'm pointing to here is developing steadfastness with yourself, steadfastness with your fears. This comes from developing clear seeing of all that arises in your heart and your mind without pushing away what you don't like or getting cozy with what you find attractive and without disassociating or acting out. So the teacher encourages you to be relaxed and more and more with your own uneasy, insecure energy and stay with yourself through highs and lows. Steadfastness with one particular person translates into steadfastness with any situation that you could possibly encounter. This starts with steadfastness with yourself and, in particular, steadfastness with your own emotional distress. Being able to open to it, to rest in it, without seeking the comfort zone of habits. So every time we stay with something, we win a small battle. Every time we not, we don't react, we don't act out, we win some sort of small um, victory. And this is, this is um, of course, why we sit still in the Zendo when we're doing Zazen. Every time we choose not to scratch that itch, right, not to squirm. We, on some level, are teaching ourselves that steadfastness is going to help us get through things. It's a very powerful way to work, I believe. Um, and this is also why I encourage people that are coming to Doksan to come anyway, even when you have nothing to say. Because it develops steadfastness. It develops our ability to work with our anxiousness about the intimacy of meeting with another person of being able to just say you know what I have nothing to say but I'm going anyway and what is arising in my body is it tension is it nervousness is yeah, do I have to come up with answers or questions oh no what am I, I have nothing to say or that uncomfortableness with stillness of silence in the Doksan room. See, these are all ways that teach us so much about ourselves. And you can see that if that's not there, there's a whole dimension that we're missing out on in practice. When when I was Kaplo Roshi's attendant, I was some people know he had Parkinson's disease 
And he also had skin lesions that he had to get removed all the time from the um, dermatologist. Uh, his arms used to kind of do this from, you know, the Parkinson's. He made uncontrollable movements, and he had a lot of pain. And when we went to the doctor, have these things removed, the lesions, uh, he never got anesthesia, not once. When we went to the dentist, when I took him to the dentist to get cavities filled, he never got Novocaine. Now, the naive person would think that he didn't feel anything, that somehow he was above it all. But that's just not true. He did feel it. He felt that uncomfortability of those movements. He felt the pain, but he didn't react. He had a steadfastness with it. He learned to just be with it. This is the difference, to just be. So, just learning to be takes trust. So we developing trust in practice and in our teachers, this takes time. In our lineage, um, there is a, for some, not for all, but for some people, they can find it helpful to enter into what we call formal student-teacher relationship. And in that, it's not formal in the sense that we wear tuxedos or anything, but it, it just means that I, as you, your teacher, vow to work as deeply as I can with you. And it may not be easy. Um, and you vow to put your best foot forward. It doesn't mean that you can't change teachers or anything like that. You can as you need to. But that ceremony, we go through a ceremony called Shoken. And it's a very simple ceremony. It's, it's takes about five minutes. Um, But when I went through that with my teacher, he said to me, he said, and I I actually repeat this as a kind of a ceremonial thing, that your job as a student is to keep one eye closed and one eye open. One eye closed and one eye open. Trusting the teacher that you may not understand, you may not agree, but at all times, and yet also trusting yourself. Again, not not leaving your good sense behind. This is where problems arise, right, in communities. This is why things happen, at least part of, part of the reason that things happen in Buddhist and other spiritual communities, abuse and things, is because people... For some reason, they say they go through this process, and despite every alarm bell going off that this is wrong, you know, that they just put that aside. So we're not asking people to do that in Zen. Pema Chodron, in that article, she says, The first time someone asked me to be their teacher, I didn't know what it meant. I kept saying no. Then after two years, I said, okay, but if you're going to do this, if we're going to do this, you have to do what I ask. You have to do what I ask you to do. She says, this was a big mistake. And I would never say that to anyone now. Because now I realize 
that you just enter into the relationship, as I did with my teacher, and it evolves to the place of trust and love. Or it doesn't. And it's not something you can demand. Yeah, I I agree. Um, It's not something you can legislate. You can't just say, look, do what I ask you to do or I won't be your teacher. Because people are going to do what they want to do anyway. Right? This is just human nature. People are going to do what they want to do. When I first started doing um, this work and therapy work with others, for some reason, I used to kind of get into these, in certain situations, get into these battles with people over trying to convince them that what they were doing in one way or another was hurting them. I was like, can't you see it? You know, now, it wasn't like, but it felt like, to me, it felt like I was holding them by their lapel and shaking them and going, can't you see how destructive these thought patterns are or what you're doing is to your life? Can't you see it? And they would say, no, I can't see it, and I'm going to continue doing it. Right? It, it took a while to, um, and I think I still make this mistake, of trying to convince people um, when they don't see it. You can't do anything with that. You have to wait till somebody sees their own patterns, their own defenses, how they're getting in their own way. And then you can say, okay, you see it, I see it, so now we can be skillful and work on it together. But it has to come from the student. Otherwise, it's always coming from the outside, and there will be a pushback against that. People need to do what they need to do. But over time, uh, mature Zen practitioners learn one thing. They learn that although they see the world in a certain way now, that will change. That's one thing I've learned. Like, oh, you know, this is it. I got it. (laughs) Right? This is really clear right now. I understand the teachings. I get it. Makes total sense. And then, six months down the road, no, I was an idiot back then. (laughs) I didn't know what I was talking about. And so this happens enough over years, you just get to the point where you're, where you stop fighting that. You just, you just, you're, you are where you are. You accept that you are where you are. But that will change. It will change. Developing trust. Trust in the process. Trust in the teachings. Trust in ourselves. This is, this is really, I think, the, Some of the Buddha's last teachings was to not trust in outside things, but to trust the Dharma. He said to don't do this practice just out of respect for myself. Don't do this out of respect for other teachers. Do this, be a lamp unto yourself, as I believe is one translation. Be a lamp unto yourself. So I, I thought, what a great motto for Buddhism. A great motto would be trust but verify. Trust but verify. Is that, what is that? Is that? It's a great nuclear arms. Yeah, um, right. Mantra. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. Trust but verify. 
Okay. So we're just about out of time. And I, and I may t- and I may take this up next week um, to to dig into this a little more. And this is where I want to dig in further. But I'm going to leave you with something, and it, it's a little bit of a cliffhanger. <laughs> okay. So it's an old Zen story. It goes like this: Obaku, famous Zen master Obaku, was instructing his assembly, and he said. You are all mash eaters. You go traveling around on pilgrimages from here to there. But I ask you, what is your view today? Don't you know that all in all the land of China, there are no Zen teachers? Well, a brave monk came forward and asked, But surely there are those who teach disciples and lead communities. What about that? And Obaku said, I don't say that there is no Zen. I only say that there are no Zen teachers. You're all mash eaters. (laughs) Mash, by the way, just so you can stick this in your cap as you leave today, as you're thinking about this. Mash, um, another uh, term for this is dregs. It's the, like the bottom of the barrel when they make alcohol. You know, it's like what's left over, the mash. So you're all mash eaters. It doesn't sound like a compliment, does it? <clears throat> what does he mean by that? What, what, what is his monks doing? Going from pilgrimage to pilgrimage. In that day and time, it was very common during the off times that monks would travel between Zen centers. They would travel between monasteries. So they would do an on period where they would sit intensely and do sashim, and then they would take off, and they would go visit this teacher and that teacher and hear these lectures and those lectures. And So you're all mash eaters. He wants to know, what do you think now? What's, what's going on now? And then, of course, he says, there are no teachers of Zen. All of China. And then the monk, of course, challenges that. You might be thinking the same thing. Well, yeah, of course there are teachers. Why does he say that there are no teachers? What is he pointing to? Here's a hint. All teachers are students. And of course, all students are teachers. So what is what is the world that Obaku was pointing to? What is this world beyond duality of the duality of teacher versus student that he's referring to? something to take, think about. Okay. So we'll stop here and we'll recite the four bodhisattva vows which are on page 36.